All right, so we're going to consider again uh, the sovereignty of God. Let me, let me open with a word of prayer and we'll, we'll do a little bit of recap here. Father, we are grateful to be able to gather in your presence, even if it is what we would consider to be just a, a Sunday school class, a time of, of teaching and surveying the scriptures. We believe that your word can be accompanied with mighty power if it would be your good pleasure. And so we're asking that you would be pleased that as we sit and as we read many scriptures together, that you would visit us with the power of the Holy Spirit, that you would convict us and convince us again of your position over all things as sovereign, ruler, and master. God, we are so glad to have such a kind, compassionate, good king. Thank you for taking us to be your people. Remind us again this evening of how good of a king you are to us. We ask this in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen. So, two weeks ago we, we began to consider the doctrine of the sovereignty of God, or the word that was used there was the supremacy of God. When we say that God is sovereign, we are essentially saying He is the supreme or sole ruler over everything. We're making a statement about His position. And I even said that to say God is sovereign is really just to simply say God is God. It's who He is. To be God, one must be sovereign. To be sovereign, one must be God, and that is the God of the Bible. To be sovereign implies that God is completely uninfluenced in the exercise of His power. There's nothing in all of creation which binds God to act in a certain way towards them. Nothing can constrain God. No event, no circumstance, no person, place, or thing comes into play where God looks and beholds and He says, well, since that is the case, I must now do this or that. Nothing, nothing constrains God in any way. In everything that God does, He's unrestricted, unhindered, and uninfluenced. To say that God is sovereign is to say that He is the only ruler. There cannot be two sovereigns. There's only one, and that is our God. He rules by Himself and He rules for Himself. To say that God is the sovereign ruler is to say that there were no rulers before Him and there can be no rulers after Him. He is alone. There aren't any rulers beside Him. There's no one giving Him help or giving Him aid or giving Him advice. He's completely isolated and solitary in His authority. He answers to no one. He reports to no one. He is responsible to none but Himself. He's sovereign. Last week, now we might say, well, we took a break last week from this, but even as we, we learned last Lord's Day about Christ and His dealing with His disciples and the, the ship and the stormy sea, we even saw there that Christ, the God-man, is this same sovereign God that we've been learning about. He was the one who orchestrated the storm, and He's the one who calmed the storm in a miraculous way. Christ is, is this sovereign God. When we, when we consider God as sovereign, we're talking about Jesus Christ. And when we talk about Jesus Christ, we're talking about the sovereign Lord. So that, that's, we've not really diverged at all. Anytime we say God, we're saying He's the sovereign one. So um, as we move forward this evening, I'm going to do something that I've not done before. I'm going to attempt to cover two chapters which means we're going to blaze through a lot of Scripture. I'm not going to add a lot of comment. 
I will, if you've got the workbook, you can follow along best there. I'll, I'll read some of the stuff that he has written. But we'll, we'll get through chapters 36 and 37 in uh, 40 minutes or less. So, chapter 36, the titles of God's sovereignty. In the thought and language of the Scripture, a name can have great significance and communicate many important truths about the one who bears it. In the Scriptures are found many are found numerous names and titles that communicate important truths about God's attributes and works. Through a study of these names, we can come to know Him in a greater and more profound way. In the following, we will consider the most important names and titles that demonstrate God's absolute sovereignty over all creation. And there are basically three sections or three titles. Uh, Lord, then King, and then the third one is Sovereign, Ruler, and or Master. There's those three in the third category. So first, we'll consider the title Lord. The English title that is most often employed in the Scriptures to communicate God's sovereignty is Lord. When you see Lord in reference to God, you're just, you, you, you automatically should read that as it asserting His sovereignty. The title describes someone who has supremacy and authority over another. When applied to God, it refers to His absolute sovereignty over all creation. Now let's turn first to Psalm 97 verse 5. Psalm 97, 5, some of these I will turn to, and some of them I'll, I'll read while you're turning to other passages. Psalm 97, verse 5, says, The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. So here we see that our God who has taken us to Himself to be His people and has given Himself to be our God, who comforts us, loves us, cherishes us, calls us the apple of His eye, that God is called the Lord and the Lord of all the earth. Now this is important. The title Lord is translated from the Hebrew word Adonai, which is the plural form of Adon. The word denotes both lordship and ownership. In the scriptures, the plural form is always used with reference to God to denote intensity. God is the absolute Lord of all things without exception. Now that phrase, all things, that's going to be repeated, I might say it 15 times this evening. All things. If God is sovereign, there can be nothing outside of His sovereign control, outside of His lordship. So that's what it says here. He's Lord of all the earth. Now I'll turn to Daniel chapter 5. Daniel chapter 5, verse 23. Daniel says to Belshazzar the king, You have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. So here he's called, our God is called the Lord of heaven. So when we put these two verses together, he's Lord of all the earth. He's Lord of heaven. And as you know from Genesis 1.1, the heavens and the earth constitute every created thing. There is God, and then there's everything not God, 
and everything not God falls under the heavens and the earth. You say, what about things like angels? It's a good study. The heavens and the earth. Everything created falls under those two categories. This is to say God is Lord of everything. And then we come to the New Testament, Acts 17, 24. Acts 17, 24, He is called the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth. He does not live in temples made by man. So there we have them both together. Three passages. He's Lord of all the earth. He's Lord of heaven. Here He's Lord of heaven and earth. And we have again that English term, Lord. And the note helps us here with, with the language because now we're in the New Testament. So we're studying or reading from Greek. The, the title Lord is translated from the Greek word kurios. So Hebrew, Adonai or Adonai, most of you have heard that. And then in the New Testament, Greek, kurios. For the Greeks, the word kurios could refer to a man of high position and power or a supernatural being that is a god. The word is used in the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament in the place of the Hebrew name Yahweh. And in the New Testament to communicate the Hebrew idea of God as Lord. It is significant that the word kurios is used without reservation with, re with reference or when referencing Jesus. So you can imagine the Christ Himself, the apostles, people of the early church, they're, they're reading the Hebrew Scriptures in the Greek language. When they would get to the name Yahweh, that, would, that had been translated using this Greek word, kurios. And then we come to read our New Testament and we see Jesus with that same title, without reservation, Jesus. What, what, what is the, the clear implication? This Jesus is the Yahweh or the Jehovah of the Old Testament. There, there was no, uh, again, no, no reservation. That, that was assumed. It was understood that Christ is the God of the Bible. All right, now we go back to the Old Testament to Deuteronomy chapter 10. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 17. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. So He is called the Lord your God. He doesn't say He is a Lord of lords or a God of gods, but the Lord your God. He's not one of many lords. He's the Lord. In this place, God stands Alone, and, and I'll say this and we'll reiterate it again in a minute, but Lord of Lords and God of Gods, it, that doesn't imply that there are actually more than one Lord or God in the same way that our God is Lord or God. 1 Corinthians 8, 5, Paul says, For although there be many so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many, quote, gods and many, quote, lords. When the Bible uses this type of language, it's, it's, the implied is so-called. People call them lords. People call them gods. And as we'll see later, they're, they're not actually so. More often, they're actually demons. Psalm 136, 3. You don't have to turn to these. I'll just read them so you can hear them. Give thanks to the Lord of lords for His steadfast love endures forever. 1 Timothy 6, 15. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, 
and Lord of Lords. In Revelation 7, 14, they will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them, for He is Lord of Lords and King of Kings. And those with Him are called and chosen and faithful. You see clearly the, the, the literary and theological irony of the Lamb being the Lord of Lords. The Lamb is ruling kings of the earth. And, and you know also the Revelation refers to men hiding themselves from the wrath of the Lamb. We would never think of wrath, lordship, or kingship when we think of a lamb. But Christ himself satisfies these great extremes. The extremes are the perfections at every, at every uh, limit. In the above Old Testament text, he says the title Lord is translated again from the Hebrew word Adonai. And in the New Testament text, it's from the Greek word kurios. Whatever lords there may be in the heavens or on the earth, visible or invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, God is Lord over all of them. And then I'll, I'll just read this. You don't have to turn to this one. Daniel 2.47 The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly, your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries. For you have been able to reveal this Mystery, and he says the same commentary can be made over and over again. Whatever kings or lords may exist in any realm of creation, we can be assured that God rules over them with absolute and undaunted authority and power. Amen. Now, we learn from these texts that our God, the only God, the God of Scripture, the living God, as the Bible would say, the living God, He is the only God, the Lord and owner of all creation. And, and He even used that reference there from Colossians 1. He's Lord over all that He's created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, etc. Now what does that mean for us? And He gives us these little hints from Malachi and Luke. Malachi 1.6 A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? says the Lord of hosts to you. In Luke 6.46, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? What's the implication? If God is Lord, and we believe that He is because it's the truth, then we ought to honor Him. We ought to fear Him. We should revere His name. Hold His name high above every other name in our estimation, in our, in our speech, in our thoughts, in our affections. And we ought to do what He says. The simplest and most basic implication of God's lordship and God's sovereignty is not that we are able to argue with other people about God's sovereignty. The most basic implication, if God is sovereign and Lord, do what He says. That's how you prove you believe in the sovereignty of God. You do what He says. Why, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? He's saying that doesn't make any sense. Just obey Him. Obey Him. The second title. first one is Lord. The second title is King. Closely related to the title of Lord is that of King. There's probably no other title in the English language that has as much power to communicate the ideas of sovereignty, power, royalty, nobility, and majesty. In the Scriptures, God is the great King over all creation. Let's turn to Psalm 47 too. Psalm 47, verse 2. I'm already 
giving more comment than I want to, so we've got to have to move. Psalm 47, 2. For the Lord, the Most High, is to be feared. A great king over all the earth. So here he's called Lord, he's called the Most High, and he's called a great king over all the earth. The note says he's not a great king reigning over a portion of the world. Rather, he is a great king reigning over all the earth without restriction of authority or limitation of jurisdiction. You don't have to turn to this one, or I should say turn to Psalm 95, 1 to 3. And while you're turning there, I'll just read Daniel 4.37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. He is called the King of heaven even by that pagan king Nebuchadnezzar. Psalm 95 verses 1 to 3. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into His presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to Him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great King over all gods. So He is again the Lord, a great God, and a great King. Revelation 15 verses 3 and 4. Go back to the the end of the canon again. Revelation 15, 3 and 4. They sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Our God, the God, our, our God, get that. Our God is the King of the nations. King of the nations. Turn to 1 Timothy 6 with me. 1 Timothy 6. Verses 15 and 16, Paul refers to God as He who is the blessed and only sovereign, is the way that's translated in the ESV, the only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to Him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. As Christians, we must give honor to and pray for the kings of this earth and all who are in authority. Nevertheless, there is a sense in which this world has only one true king. And to him, we must give our ultimate allegiance. Or to him, our ultimate allegiance must be given. And then we see verse 17 of 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy 1. 17, to the king of the ages, or you might have the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God or the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. 
Here the divine king is described with three adjectives that demonstrate his supremacy or superiority over all other so-called kings. He's eternal. The idea is that God is the king of every age. He is immortal. There will never be a changing of the guard. He will never be voted out of office. He will never die so that another must take his place. He's immortal. And he is invisible. God is spirit and therefore unhindered by the physical limitations or restraints of even the most powerful rulers. What we learn from this is that there has never been a time, nor will there ever be a time, there has never been a place, nor will there ever be a place, where our God does not reign as the indisputable king. As as I've said before, men may oppose... Men may present themselves as disputing the the Godship of God or the Lordship of Christ. Even that is orchestrated by God Himself. As as it says in Psalms 2, He sits in the heavens and He laughs. He holds them in derision. It's nothing to Him. He rules over the whole earth. He rules over all nations and all times. Everything is under the dominion of our God. Our God. The third group of of titles is Sovereign, Ruler, and Master. Sovereign, Ruler, and Master. Now we're still here in 1 Timothy 6, so I'll read that passage again. 1 Timothy 6, 15 and 16. He who is the blessed and only Sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to Him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. He is the blessed and only Sovereign. There can only be one Sovereign. There can only be one King, one Ruler, one ultimate Master, that is our God. He says this word Sovereign comes from the Greek word Dunastes, which denotes a ruler or a potentate. Some You might see that translated as potentate. God rules by His own right and power. Now, this I love. The word blessed. He who is the blessed and only sovereign. That word blessed comes from the Greek word makarios. You remember that from the, the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor, blessed are the meek. This word makarios denotes that God exists in perfect, uninterrupted blessedness, joy, and contentment. Some people even say the word very simply means happy. God is the happy sovereign. He rules so sovereignly, so in, in such a way that is, that, that, that is, is so omnipotent, w- without any real opposition, that He is just eternally infinitely happy. We imagine, oh, with all of the opposition that God is facing in the world, He must must just be in, in turmoil all the time. There is a sense in which God is angry with the wicked every day, but in an ultimate sense, God's happy. Nothing is happening in the world that catches God off guard or 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 can move him from his happiness. He's the happy sovereign. Turn back with me to Daniel 4. Daniel 4.17, the 
The sentence is by the decree of the watchers. The decision is by the word of the holy ones. To the end that the living may know that the Most High rules or is ruler. He rules the kingdom of men. And He gives it to whom He will. And sets over it the lowliest of men. The word ruler here comes from the Aramaic word shalit, which denotes one having mastery, rule, or dominance. God does not just rule over individual persons or kingdoms. His rule extends over the entire realm of humanity collectively, and He is directing everything toward His desired end. Jude 4. You don't have to turn here. I'll just read this one. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. The word master is translated from the Greek word despotes, which denotes ownership and absolute lordship. You've heard of the word despot. God is the rightful owner and Lord of what He's made. His holiness and righteousness guarantee that He will always use His absolute authority with perfect justice. The term despotes is used six times in the New Testament with reference to God. In 2 Peter 2, 1 and Jude 4, the reference is specifically to Jesus Christ. Now what do we see? What do we learn from this? God is the potentate. God has the mastery. He has the right of rule over everything that He has made, which is to say God is sovereign, which is to say God is God. We are all, all we're saying is God is God. Chapter 37. This, or this, this chapter is entitled The Extension of God's Sovereignty. Now we're asking, what are the limits of God's rule? You say, we've, we've already covered this. We, we have, and that's why we're, we're going to cram these things together and, and just hear it repeatedly. What are the limits of God's rule? Is there any creature or activity that is not under His government? The Scripture's answer is clear. Every living being, every created thing, and all events of history are under the sovereign government of God. He rules over all things. And nothing, including man, is beyond the boundaries of His rule. As Creator and Sustainer, He has the exclusive and unchallenged right to govern all realms and all creatures according to His will and good pleasure. He does all that He desires. There is no power in heaven, earth, or hell that can alter or hinder what He has determined. We need to understand, God is sovereign. God is God. That's the point. The question is, how, how far out can we go with, with God's godness? Everywhere. Is, is there a limit to God's godness? No. Is there a place where God isn't God? No. Is there a time where God isn't God? No. The extension of God's sovereignty is over all things, all places, all times, all people, all creation. Let's look at Psalm 33, 11.
Psalm 33, 11. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of His heart to all generations. So we see here God's sovereignty extends to all generations. We, we could say from everlasting to everlasting, God is. From everlasting to everlasting, God is sovereign. The plans of God's heart refer to His certain and immutable decrees. And many of these scripture references, as I'm reading them myself, I'm thinking that a prayer that we often ought to pray while we're reading or hearing these verses read is just to pray, God, help me to believe this. This, this is so, so much bigger than we can even fathom. Help me to really believe and be convinced and convicted that the counsel of the Lord stands. What happens, happens because God said, let there be. God decreed it and it is. He's God. Psalm 103, 19. And I say that from, from my own experience. It's so easy to confess. God is sovereign. God is sovereign. God is sovereign. You get in one hard spot. Well, I don't, what's, what's happening now? I don't know. God's sovereign. Psalm 103, 103, 19. The Lord has established His throne in the heavens and His kingdom rules over all. The word established comes from the Hebrew verb kun, which means to make firm, sure, or steadfast. God's throne and His sovereign decrees are immovable and unassailable. That is, His rule is over all. God presides as King over everything that isn't God. He rules over everything that's not God. Because He's sovereign. Psalm 115.3 One of my favorites and, and most simple statements about God's sovereignty, Psalm 115.3, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. The word pleases comes from the Hebrew word kafetz, which means to delight in or take pleasure in. Theologians commonly speak of God's good pleasure. It means that God's decisions and actions are not motivated merely by logic, calculation, or reason. They are never driven by caprice or whim. God does that which conforms to His holiness, righteousness, and love, and that which brings Him delight. Going back to Him being the blessed and only sovereign, the happy God. Our God is in the heavens. He does everything that makes Him happy. Psalm 115.3, we could say, All that He pleases. Psalm 135.6 says the same truth in a few more words. Psalm 135, 6, whatever the Lord pleases, He does. In heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps. The reference to heaven, earth, and the seas is a poetic way of making reference to, all, to the entirety of creation without exception. Here the psalmist goes even further by mentioning all deeps. Every nook and cranny of creation, so to speak, is under God's sovereign rule. Whatever God pleases, He does. Whatever He does, He pleases. God's happy. Nothing keeps God from being happy and doing whatever He pleases. And then Ephesians 1.11 says the same thing except applying it now to the actual works. Ephesians 
Ephesians 1.11, In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things, according to the counsel of His will. His will, His good pleasure, what makes Him happy, that which He pleases, these are all the same idea. The word works here comes from the Greek word energeo, which communicates not only work, but also energy and efficiency. God accomplishes all things according to His will with unlimited energy and perfect efficiency. He works all things according to the counsel of His will. And that takes us back even, as we know, into His eternal decree. What He has decreed to happen, happens because He then works all things according to that eternal decree. So God's sovereignty extends over all times and places in heaven and on earth and every nook and cranny of the earth, every corner. We like to think of the deep, deepest, darkest, furthest corner of the universe. We're just spouting off words. We don't even know what we're talking about. But whatever that might be, God rules. He reigns there. You can't step outside of God's sovereign rule. The next section says that the truth that God does whatever He pleases in the realm of creation is a testimony not only to His sovereignty, but also to His omnipotence. He is all-powerful. And there is therefore no creature or power that can oppose Him. Let's look at 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verse 6. 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verse 6. We'll turn to this one and then I'll read the next two. 2 Chronicles 20, verse 6. O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might, so that none is able to withstand you. That, that rhetorical question, and then there's another one, Job 23, 13, He is unchangeable. Who can turn Him back? What He desires that He does. These are rhetorical questions. The answer is assumed. When we read, O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? We could stop there and say the implication is He's sovereign. He rules. He's, are you not God? Are you not sovereign? Are you not ruler? Are you not master? Are you not king? All of that's the same thing. It's, it's understood. Proverbs 21, 30-31, No wisdom, no understanding, no counsel can avail against the Lord. The horse is made ready for the day of battle, but the victory belongs to the Lord. In other words, men, men can do whatever they, whatever they can, whatever they want, and we are all obligated to do what God commands. If, if uh, riding a horse into battle is something that God has given for His people to do, if that's, if that's something men are given to do, we do that. But ultimately, in the end, it is the will of the Lord which settles all matters. We cannot avail against Him. And even as we go with Him according to His will, we're not helping Him. We're, we're, not, we're not bringing something in that allows Him to accomplish His will. He is simply doing what He has settled to do and using us according to His purposes. The victory belongs to the Lord. So His omnipotence fits into His sovereignty. And in the next section, we see that, his, that there's a relationship between His sovereignty and His ability to foresee and foretell the future. 
Let's turn to Isaiah 46. Isaiah 46 verses 9 and 10. And I would say that this even goes deeper than foreseeing and foretelling. This, this goes back into the eternal decree. Isaiah 46, 9 and 10, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. It doesn't say God saw the end from the beginning, that God knew the end from the beginning. It says He declared the end from the beginning. He spoke it with a verbal decree, Obviously an anthropomorphism. God decreeing the end from the beginning. This is what will be and every step in between. The note there, and this is important. Many believers wrongly attribute God's ability to foretell the future to His omniscience. In other words, they say, well, the reason God can say what's going to happen is because He knows everything. Well, that's sort of true, but there's another step in there. He says they do this without any thought to His sovereignty. However, as this text demonstrates, verse 10, God knows the future perfectly, not only because He is perfectly omniscient, but also because He is absolutely sovereign. He has decreed every event from beginning to end. And He is directing all things according to what He has decreed. He knows the future not because He looks through the corridors of time and sees how all things will play out, but because He is the author and of the future and is directing all things according to His plan. See the difference. People say, oh God, God look down the corridors of time. Okay, where did these corridors come from? Who built them? Who, who's, who's, who's framing these walls up of time and events so that God could then look down and see? Whoever did that is God, if that's the way you think. God decreed the corridors. God decreed what would happen, and therefore He can... Or tell it. He is the author of the future. Now we can't presume upon this, but we can say with certainty, whatever happens, not with the future because we don't know the future, but we can look back and say whatever has happened, whatever, rock flew off a tire and hit my windshield, whatever, you name it, it happened because God decreed from eternity that thing will happen this time, this place, this person, and that goes for every event, every circumstance, for every person on the face of the planet, every creature, every animal, every flower, every tree, every bird, every cloud, every drop of rain, from the beginning of time until the end of time, He decreed it all. And then He's worked providentially to make it all happen according to that decree. In other words, God is sovereign. He rules over all. Now let's turn back again to Daniel 4, and we'll conclude here. And as you've noticed, we, we come to Daniel 4 many times. I think it is, is worthy of noting that one of the greatest and most succinct passages regarding the sovereignty of God is found in a place where a pagan king was humbled by God, brought to nothing... And then spoke these words. Daniel 4, 34 and 35. At the end of the days, 
I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored Him who lives forever. For His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and He does according to His will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay His hand or say to Him, What have you done? So there are several parts to this. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. This is speaking to the chronological extent of God's sovereignty. Generation to generation, everlasting Never started, never stops. 35, all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. The idea here is that in comparison to the greatness of God, all creation combined is as nothing. Verse 35 again, He does according to His will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. Here the extent goes to all creatures and all things. His own unrestrained will is the only rule by which God conducts Himself. His own unrestrained, uninfluenced good pleasure. He acts. No one can ward off His hand or say to Him, What have you done? In other words, no one is capable of stopping God or even offering a rational questioning to what God has done. We, as we, as we sort of saw this morning, even as... as Believers, just creatures, we don't have the equipment to go before God and say, we think you're wrong here. Now, now we, can, we can, I don't think it's wrong to wonder, or maybe even pray and say, Lord, help me to see what you're doing. But for us to, in, in, this, in this sense, uh, question Him, what have you done? As if He's done something wrong. We can't say that. We can't even venture there because we're not God. We're creatures. He says the truth conveyed in this text is powerful. There is no strength in heaven or earth that can restrain God's hand and there is no wisdom that can call Him into question or refute Him. So in light of this, as we'll see next week, we owe God reverence. We owe God obedience. We owe God worship and adoration and praise. Now, one part of worship, to be very specific, is prayer. So I said an implication of the belief that God is sovereign is that we obey Him. Well, another implication in our belief that God is sovereign is that we will have confidence when we pray. We need to understand and know that when we pray to our God, we are praying to the One who rules over everything without hindrance for the good of His saints. Not just generally. That, that is true. He does generally rule everything. But particularly, He's gear, He's decreed and is working everything with, with this bent or this angle, the good of His people. When we pray, when we bring things to the Lord, we need to understand that's who we're going to. He, he's already from eternity predisposed to do us good. See? We ought to be confident in our prayers. Well, let's pray and we'll be dismissed.